Okay, we are in Mark chapter 14, if you'd find it. Verse 27, I think we're picking up. 26, take that back. Thank you. It wasn't really a sneeze or anything. But. Mark chapter 14. I'm going to start with a question, so I need you to really get there and then look up. Because all these questions connect to a point that we're going to make throughout the sermon. And so um, I think this is a big deal. Mark 14, now look up. Let me ask you this. Why did Jesus go to the cross? I stand in the back when you guys are coming in. It's not to find out if you're late. Please don't be paranoid. I love saying hi to people. I don't get a chance to do that enough. Um, And I recognize many times new faces. So let me just make some assumptions about the crowd today. Um, A lot of you familiar. A lot of you have been around Jesus for a while. A lot of you have got answers to what the question that I just asked is. Some of you might not. So no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, no matter what you believe or what you think in, that question I think is probably one of the preeminent questions a man or woman could ever answer. Why did Jesus die? Why did he come and allow himself to be arrested and tried and condemned and ultimately executed? Why, why that? The passage that we're looking at is probably very familiar, whether you're a churchgoer or not. It's the passage about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, dealing with the weight, and we're going to look at this this morning, the weight of of what God is putting on him, sin for mankind, okay? And it's an agonizing story at that moment, and Jesus, in essence, is saying in the midst of this moment, is there another way? Now, stop and think about that. Jesus is asking, is there some way out of this? In fact, what he says truly in the scriptures, is remove this cup from me. That's what he asked the Father, take it away. Like the weight of it, whatever it is, is so much that Jesus is tapping out in in essence. Like I I just don't want to go through this. He doesn't want to go through the agony. But, and this is really important, he chooses to do it. And that's the question I want you to to wrestle with this morning. I'm going to give you a partial answer. And then in the end of our sermon, I'm going to give you the answer, I believe, the scriptures provide for us. An answer would be what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 when he's talking about the life of faith and he describes it run in such a way, right? And and, and he says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, bearing its shame, right? So you could say an answer would be joy. The reason why Jesus went to the cross is joy and that that is true. But if you're a thinking person, you would say, okay, what was the joy in that? It's the cross, it's suffering, it's the garden, it's the weight of sin. What, where was the joy in what Jesus did? Now, you might be very familiar with the passage that I just quoted to you again. As it finishes, it says this, enduring the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, you might say, well, that's his joy right there. He wants to be next to the Father. Well, again, if you're applying any kind of thought to that, you go, well, then why did he come to the earth in the first place? If his joy was ultimately be next to the Father, his rightful place, Then avoid the earth altogether, avoid dealing with sin. Just stay with the Father and you've got that perfect joy. And yet, over and over again, we have learned in these gospel presentations that Jesus knew all along that he came to die. There was no mystery for him. He's not discovering the suffering thing at the last hour. He knows his intention for being here is to come to die, right? To give his life a ransom for many. Isn't that what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus? There is the Lamb of God. He's going to die for his blood to cover sin. And we saw that uh, last couple of weeks. And so there's got to be another part to this joy, and that's the T 
teaser for later, okay? So I simply want you to do one thing while I'm talking other than pay attention. Um, And that is just wrestle with this thought. Think about Jesus' motive. Why? It's a reasonable question, right? Now, I changed the sermon after 8 o'clock for a reason, and and I'm going to show you the reason. I want you to look at the last two verses of this passage that we're supposed to deal with today, verses 51 and 52. And the reason why I'm dealing with the last two verses is to get them out of the way. I had three or four people line up last week and say, tell me about the naked guy. And I think that's a little distracting, to, the, to be honest with you. But I don't want to ignore it because some of you want to know about the naked guy. So um, let, me, let me just tell you here. Uh, m- most of the writers that I read suggest that Mark, the writer of this gospel, is the young man in this particular section where it says a man followed after him, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, you would look at that and go, what the heck does that have to do with anything? And to be fair, it has very little to do with what I think is happening in the passage. I think this is an authorial insert by Mark. And here's what I'm saying. Most writers would suggest that Mark, who is getting the gospel story from Peter, has inserted himself in here because he was the guy. He was the young man. And you could ask some questions, why? And I think one is obviously for Mark to say, I was there, I I saw it. But the other thing is you have to understand, what we see in the story in Gethsemane would be a mystery if all the disciples are sleeping and Jesus didn't write it. Who would know? Somebody saw it. And so I think there's a high likelihood that Mark was watching it from a distance, wrapped up in a sheet or something, and he's the one that penned it. And there's some urgency to the fact that this crisis that was happening with the soldiers coming to seize Jesus, they seized him too. And you go, this is a big deal. This is going down and people are, people are going to get dealt with. And so Mark just writes it to say, I was there. I'm the author behind this story. You're going to see it. And uh, there was some intensity to it. So, all right, we're done with the naked guy, okay? Everyone good with that answer? And there's no guarantee that Mark is the guy, so just cut me some slack on all that. I'm going to break this passage up in three sections. We're going to look at the disciples and the decisions they make. We're going to look at Jesus and the decision he makes, and then we're going to kind of look at what the outcome of both of those decisions are in the last section. So let's deal with the first section, verses 26 to 31, and this is the disciples and their decision. Let's read together, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. You remember where we were last week, right? Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper. He's taken the Passover meal and kind of reinterpreted to point to himself. And he takes the bread and he takes the cup of wine and he says, these things represent what I'm doing. And so we kind of made it really clear what we do when we take communion together. We are saying, in essence, a spiritual illustration that Jesus is our life. We get our strength. We get our nourishment. We get our life from Jesus. There is no name under heaven by which men must be saved. We're confessing that every time we take the bread and the cup. And so Jesus makes that point and teaches that lesson. But just prior to pointing those illustrations out, he reminded the disciples or told the disciples, one of you, one of you is going to betray me. And we unpacked last week about Judas and his particular angst and betrayal, but tension's picking up now in this passage because it goes beyond one, and Jesus says, hey, by the way, let me just make this really clear. All of you, all 12 of you are going to abandon me at this point. 
and uh, going to desert me. In fact, he brings up a passage from Zechariah chapter 13, a prophecy where God talks about this thought when he says that, the, that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You, you guys know this, right? You, you know this has been in the water for a long time, and, and he's trying to draw their attention to the prophecy part of what God is doing. So my guess, if you back away from this text and put yourself in a disciple's shoes, the last couple of sessions with Jesus have been a little bit difficult, right? One of you is going to betray me. Oh, wait, time out. All 12 of you are going to abandon me. So this is pretty intense if you're a follower of Christ at this point. But notice what Jesus does. As soon as he talks about that, it does what he always does. He brings up hope. Verse 28, you'll see it where he says, and again, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Every time Jesus prophesies about his death, he follows it up with a prophecy about his resurrection. Every time he talks about this weight, this brutality of his coming death, he talks about the hope of him being risen from the dead and applied to sinners. He always reminds his disciples not only about what he's gonna do that's painful and they don't wanna look at, but he talks about the outcome of what he's doing. Every single time, every time he mentions that event, that event that brings despair to them, he brings one that brings hope. Don't worry, I'll be back, okay? That's, in essence, what Jesus has said to them. But because the disciples struggle to even understand, let alone believe this death talk that Jesus has constantly brought up over time, they totally miss the hope part. It's like, you keep talking about death, and as soon as you do, I go into defense mode, i.e. Peter, no, may it never be, not on my watch, you're not going to die. So they totally miss the second half of every time he talks about this death. He talks about hope, and so they don't hear that as well. I think the, fact, the text is pretty clear. We'll find out, too, at the end of, of uh, after he is sacrificed, after he's risen, you find the disciples kind of hunkered down, depressed in the upper room, wondering what happened. They, they never got the second half of the story. They never understood the hope of the resurrection because they didn't understand his sacrifice. They had no concept of it. And we have been telling you for the last couple of weeks that there's a couple of reasons why they don't accept this discussion about death, and that's because they have a different Messiah in mind. Just a, just a Small version, which, by the way, is another sermon for another day where people have a, a way to try to describe Jesus that isn't the full Jesus because they want to use him to sort out problems, not be the Lord of glory. So nevertheless, that's a sermon for another time. But here, the disciples simply think of Jesus as this Messiah King. And I'm, I'm okay even if they consider him to be God. But in their mind, he was here to do one thing, and that is to rule. They did not see his suffering. And so they struggled with that. They had no, son, no concept of it. And at least it seems to me in this passage, um, they struggle clearly because they're too busy defending themselves. They weren't listening. As soon as Jesus brings up this potential fallout from the guys, they simply put up their dukes and defend their position. Jesus tells them, you're weak and you're going to be disloyal and you're going to walk away. And all they can think is, wait a minute, time out, Jesus. We are your men. We've been with you for three years we, we've called you the Savior. We've called you the Messiah. I've confessed you as Christ. I mean, we're, we're all in. You're going to tell us that we're going to leave. In fact, their response is, everybody but us. Makes no sense. And, and Peter, by the way, who, who we have a lot in common with, P Peter makes even a bigger fool of himself when he stands in front of all of them and says, I can see your point, Jesus. I mean, looking around this room, they might all fail you, but I won't. I'm different. That's how Peter plays this out. 
when Jesus simply looks at Peter and says, do you really think you're different? Do you, you really think you're stronger? Let me, let me, let me tell you about you, Peter. Not, not only are you going to run like everybody else runs, but by the time the day ends, you're going to have denied knowing me three times. That's how bad it is for you. And Peter can't stand it. All he does is fire right back. No, Jesus, you're wrong. You're wrong. Even if I have to die, I'm with you, and you're going to miss this one. So let me stop and ask a question. And by the way, Mark tells us that everyone said the same thing. I can't imagine what that moment looks like when Jesus is telling them, hey, you're all going to fall away in their defense of themselves. Where does that confidence come from? Where does um, the source of like that real conviction that they're never going to abandon Jesus, that belief in themselves, where does it come from? Was it some kind of deep theology they have discovered over the last three years? Was it like, uh, like they've learned discipline? You know, they've really applied discipline and buffeted their body, made their slave, and they're prepared to go to death for it. Was it um, something they understood? Like when Jesus unpacks this wonderful illustration through the communion elements of who he is and why he came, that they, say, they know and they're confessing right there that we understand that we can live with Jesus out of us and that's how we're gonna stand our ground and be strong and firm? You know the answer, right? No. There wasn't any discipline going on or any kind of spiritual awareness or the theology that they were applying. They were simply, ready for this, confident in themselves confident in their flesh. Someone reminded me earlier, because I, I kind of pray while you guys are coming in, that what Jeremy said at communion, kind of like a little boy who says, I can do it myself. I can do it without you. And isn't that what's happening here? In their power, they thought they could stand. So here's a question. Have you ever made a promise um, like this with this kind of confidence and blown it? A couple of us, Maybe. I think we all have. Let me prove it. Marriage. Okay? Isn't marriage one of those things where you stand in front of a pastor and you sort of commit really crazy things? I promise to be Jesus to this person. Who hasn't dropped that ball? I, I dropped it yesterday. I'm dropping it after lunch. I'm not, I can't do this. Um, but it comes from a source. And what is the source? You know what the word is. Starts with a P. Ends with Ride pride. There's a part of us that just really feels good about where we're at. I'm strong enough. I know enough. My intentions are good. Like, I really like me. People should like me. And that's where it comes from. It comes from this place of pride or possibly fear or things that, you know, if I I'm afraid to look stupid, and so the reason why I'm confident is because I'm never going to look stupid, and I'm more inclined to care about my reputation than about even the promise, so my fear will drive me to it. I have another agenda. I'm the agenda. So I keep my promises for those reasons. The source of the disciples' confidence at that moment was themselves. They chose to believe in their own strength. Okay, that's one decision. Disciples make. Now let's look at Jesus. Second section in verses 32 through 42. You're going to see the contrasting pair between these two decisions and the outcome. Verse 32 says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to greatly distress and be troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. 
And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed, if, I, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, the betrayer is at hand. Jesus leads his disciples outside of Jerusalem to a garden called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. An olive press was used to pulverize olives to get out every drop of oil possible. If God were going to put Jesus at the moment of his suffering in a place that had definition to describe what he was doing for men, this is perfect. God is about to crush his son pulverize him for the sins of man and exact every drop of righteousness and every drop of justice right here in the garden. That's the picture of what's happening. Jesus takes his disciples. He drops eight off at the gate and says, you guys stay here and pray. I'm taking three with me, Peter, James, and John. I love their nicknames, especially after failure. Peter the Rock, James and John, sons of thunder. You, you would think those nicknames would mean something more than what it does, but he takes them with them while literally the weight of the world is on his shoulders. And he says of the description in verse 34, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. The weight is so heavy I'm going to miss the translation. He is so troubled by the weight, he just simply says to his friends, his closest friends, stay here, please stay here and watch. Would you just stay here and pray for me? Just pray. Stay alert. This is really important. Now stop for a second. Let me remind you of something. If we go back to the gospel narrative, and in fact, we go to Matthew's account of Jesus before he entered public ministry, the Bible tells us that God led him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. You remember this story in Matthew chapter four? And he hit, sends him out there and he doesn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights and he's hungry and I guess so and Satan shows up and says, hey, can't you turn these stones into bread? Why don't you do that? And Jesus' response was, no, man will not live by bread alone. And the temptation was to meet his needs outside of God's will. That was the temptation. Jesus said, no, we live by God's will. The second temptation was, was uh, taking the top of the temple, hey, jump off. Aren't you miracle man? Isn't God going to protect you? And, and of course, um, Jesus said, you don't put the Lord God to the test. The third temptation was... was he shows, Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world and says, listen, I will give you all of their worship if you bow down and worship me. The temptation was this, avoid the cross. Go around the suffering. You can get, you can get the adoration of everybody and you can go around the pain and suffering and the weight of sin, just worship me. Of course, his response was, no, we're not doing that. Worship the Lord and him only. And Satan fled. And if you remember the text in Luke chapter, uh, or Luke chapter 4, this is what it says at the end of that temptation, that the devil departed from him until an opportune time. You remember that? This is the opportune time. 
after all that ministry, after all that wonderful gospel life and living and communication, here is Satan back at it again. And he comes and this is what he says. Jesus, avoid the cross. Avoid the separation. Avoid the pain. Avoid the shame. Avoid the disgrace that's obviously going to come on you if you hold up the sin of the world. We talk a lot, and it's true, about the physical suffering of Jesus, but there is so much going on here more than physical suffering. Many people have died. Many people have died horrendous deaths. But what Jesus is doing here is unfathomable. Paul talks about what's happening here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where it says, now just listen, don't, don't look around, listen. This is what's happening. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might know the righteousness of Christ. He took a sinless Savior and poured on him your mess and my mess and the mess of this world. Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. I, uh, from time to time, I have study ADD, okay? And uh, Thursdays are my brutal long day, and Neil probably laughs at me because I have to get up and walk around. Things grinding constantly, but I can't formulate a thought. And part of my stress on Thursday was I wanted to find new words to tell you about the weight of Christ because we are so casual with it. It is so powerful and it's so poignant, but all I have is English, so I'm going to try. Here's what the text tells us, and so much more. Every sin. Every sin. Every sin of thought and will and intention and motive. Every secret sin, every sin you have yet to learn how to do well. Every sin. From everybody who would believe. Ever committed throughout time, past present, and future. All of God's holy, righteous wrath stored up in heaven for all of that mess was poured out on Jesus alone and without defense. You can understand why he's saying, can this, can we go around this? Can, Can you take this cup from me? Jesus was to take all the shame, all the guilt, all the loneliness, all the abandonment, All of it. And ringing in the background is a deceiver who at that very moment shows up at the opportune time and he says, Jesus, do you know what you're doing? Father hates sin. If you take sin, he's going to hate you. And you've known fellowship with him for all time and eternity and He's going to turn his back on you and you're going to know what it is to be totally abandoned and alone in ways you can't fathom. Jesus, are you sure you want to do this? And that weight kept pressing on him and pressing on him and pressing on him. And before you think, oh, well, isn't he just God kind of dealing with this? I mean, this is not like us dealing with some kind of weight. You're dead wrong. This is the man of Christ dealing with the weight of men's sins at this moment. And it was a real struggle, so much so that verse 33 says he was greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 36, it's where he says, Abba, Father, or Daddy, Father, please let it go past me. Remove this cup, this cup of of suffering and, and wrath. 
And what you have to get your head around is every bit, every drop of this suffering was real and painful. And the distress was, was his. In fact, the, Dr. Luke in his gospel in chapter 22 says that his sweat was like drops of blood. That's intense. You ever been that stressed? Jesus was. Now stop for a second. As much as this passage is about the theology of Christ's suffering, I think it's equally about the theology of Christ's sympathy. And we've got to stop and talk about that for a second. You know what the writer of Hebrews has said about Jesus and how he gets in the mess with us and understands us and deals with our weaknesses um, and understands it from our perspective. This is what he says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Isn't that what we understand Jesus to be for us? The perfect representation, the man who stood in the gap and understood what that weight felt like. Jesus knows what it's like to face a difficult decision of obedience. If you're a Christian in here, okay, I'm gonna describe to you what our life is like. Every bit of your core wants to obey. Every bit of who you are on the inside wants to please them, and you don't want to sin. Every day you wake up and go, I don't want to sin today. But if you're a Christian, every day you go to bed and say, I confess. Do you not? And every day you wrestle with different things. Jesus knows what it's like to have the flesh cry out and the soul war against it. And that tug of war that exists between the flesh saying, I want to go around that. And the soul saying, I want to please the Father. He understands that. In his distress, there is no sin. In his crying out, there is no sin. In the confusion between the heart that loves God in the, in the deepest sense and the flesh that wants to avoid the pain of his command. All of that, with all of that weight and all that trouble and the temptation to do something else, he simply says, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours. That's what Jesus does. Now, let me go back to the question I asked you when we started. Why did Jesus go through that? Why did he go through that? Why, why did he go to the cross? I told you what Hebrews said for the joy that was set before him, but, but I did ask you another question. Okay, what was his joy? If it was the joy before him, what was the particular joy? I'm going to give you the answer. John's Gospel, chapter 12. John is not telling us the story of Gethsemane. He doesn't record that for us. He simply describes to us the weight that Jesus was dealing with. And this is what he says in verse 27 of John chapter 12. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. So you get the intention, right? That's what Jesus wants. Save me from this. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Church, what is his joy? To glorify his Father, right? He chooses to suffer. He chooses to die. He chooses to carry our shame, to be accused as a sinner for the glory of God. That is the joy that was set before him. God's glory was preeminent in his life, and it morphed every other circumstance, Okay? The fact that Jesus could display the character of God to blind and sinful people was the reason why he came. God going on display. We could never know what God was like 
if Jesus didn't come to show him to us. You wouldn't understand of the magnificence and the totality of God's love unless it wasn't seen in the work and the life of Jesus. You wouldn't know of God's patience unless it didn't show in the person and the life of Jesus. You wouldn't understand at all about God's power, at all about God's power, unless it didn't show up in the person of Jesus. The transcendence and the holiness of God shows up in Jesus. And God goes on display so that you and I who are blind and dead and stupid can see God. That's why he came. So I wanna, I wanna hurt your feelings a little bit, okay? And I need you to listen to this. Salvation is not about you. Salvation is about God. God demonstrating himself. Apart from everything anybody's ever told you about this good news story, you're not the center of God's world. He is. Anything else would be blasphemy. For him to tell you and command you to love him preeminently and then him not to do the same, what do you think? He is the focal point. And everything. Do we receive salvation? Yes. Do we have eternal life? Yes. Do we get blessed? Yes. Do we spend eternity with him? Of course we do. All good things. But we're not the epicenter of God's attentions or affections. He is so great and he is so awesome. He is. And the gospel puts him on display. Everything from creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and glory all are meant to show him off. Does that make sense? To make much of him. That is the joy in the garden that's compelling Jesus to push through the fear and the concern of what the Father's called him to. But playing in the background are these I will never let you down, guys, okay? And they're sleeping, not once, but three times. And Jesus goes to Peter and essentially says to Peter, Peter, you just said you'd die with me. You can't even pray with me. You remember that? That was that really hardcore confession. You can't even pray with me. Pray, Peter. It's your only shot to faithfulness. Pray, Peter. It's the only hope for being strong. You need to pray. Your dependency on yourself is going to lose. You can't make it. You need his strength in you and for you. And Jesus says what I think is a very comforting thing, not only to Peter, but to every Christian who's ever walked the planet, when he says to, to Peter that the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is the Lord of glory looking at every believer's life and seeing downside of us, this little heart of us that beat for him, that he made beat for him. And he sees that we really do, we really do want to please him. And he's just simply saying, I know, I know the heart is willing. I know you mean well, but you have no idea how weak the flesh is. You have no idea what it does to you. You have no idea how strong prayer is. So do you see now the contrast between the disciples and Jesus? How the disciples depended upon themselves and Jesus, the Lord of glory depended on his Father. Do you see the difference there? Okay, now let's read this last section and uh, see the outcome of these decisions. Verses 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs with, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out 
as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. The narrative goes like this. Judas comes back. He is doing what Jesus told him he would do. He comes back, but this time he comes back with a crowd of armed religious people and a kiss. That's how Jesus return, or Judas returns. The word for kiss is phileo. It's the, it's the most expressive, affectionate, brotherly love term you can use. And out of all things used to identify and trade in Jesus, it would be this kiss. This one big sloppy wet kiss on the cheek for Jesus, an affectionate move. And as twisted as that is to, from Judas' standpoint, we see Peter here, and he demonstrates a confusion that I have a hard time understanding. Because as soon as this happens, he jumps up with a sword and starts lopping off ears, okay? John tells us in his account of this in John chapter 18 that it was Peter that took this one last shot to prove himself, to make this point clear. And he does strike the servant. And um, at first glance, you look at the story and, well, that looks good. I mean, that's the way I'd go about defending what I said I was convicted to do. It looks kind of good, but here's the problem. Peter is still in denial about suffering. What he's trying to stop is the only hope for mankind. He would like Jesus to go to a throne, not to a cross, and so he's trying to stop it. He's in complete confusion about this suffering servant, and so he makes a stand. I also think this is not as courageous as it looks because Peter is not doing this autonomous from Jesus' presence. Jesus is there. The magic man is there. This is that that speaks over dead people and they rise. I'm certain he has a little bit of courage there because of Jesus' presence. But here's what happens. Jesus takes the ear, according to Luke, and he places it back on the servant's head and he allows himself to be seized. And at that very moment, the text tells us that once they realized that Jesus was not going to do anything to protect himself, they split. They all split. They did exactly what Jesus told them they would do. Now, I want you to see the, the outcome of these choices. The disciples, clearly, and Peter's the band leader, they've taken the approach to trust in themselves. And the result is what? They fail. Okay, they fail. Jesus depends on the Father's will and strength and he gets up and he obeys and he stares the cross in the face. He faces it. In other words, what you need to remind yourself of, here is the Lord of glory and the prayers in the garden had their effect. God comes and comforts Jesus and prepares him for what's ahead of him. And he gets up and he responds in obedience. So now get the irony of this moment. Jesus, the only man ever who was born without sinful flesh, does not trust in his sinful flesh, but leans on his father and it equals obedience. We who are all born sinful, every one of us, lean into our flesh. Why do you think we fall? Don't you think if Jesus depends on the father in those ways, we have to do it times a billion? Of course We are the disciples. It's a perfect depiction. So let me just finish real quickly with this. Some of these so what's you could have written yourself, and it's pretty pretty simple. The first one would be this. I think it would be good for the church. I think it would be good for us to every day wake up and remind ourselves that we are not the point of the gospel. We are not the point of salvation. His glory is the point. Let me tell you how that will affect some things. If you are confused and think that this whole thing is about God getting carried away about you, like you're really 
you're the preeminent thought in his life, then when you experience suffering or sickness or difficulty, how do you think you'd behave? Wait a minute, God. This is about me. I'm mad at you. Have you not heard that? I'm mad at you, God. This should go better than this. I should be happier than this. After all, isn't that what you're all about is my happiness? Okay. If you understand that he is about his glory, don't you think that you will also learn about your suffering and your circumstance at this, that God goes on display in that, that his glory is preeminent not just for Jesus, but for his people? That's the ultimate good? Which ultimately, if we are truly loved by the Father and he lives in us, our greatest place of satisfaction will be his glory, right? Here's a second so what. You can't depend on you, so stop trying. Don't try. I understand what Jesus says. I really believe it. I, I'm an, I experience this myself. The flesh is willing. I want to say no to sin. But the flesh is absolutely powerless to do anything about it. Okay? So, clearly, if Jesus depended on the Father, what do you think we should do? Let me give you three little words to remember how to depend on the Father. Word, prayer, people. This is not a mystery, church. You've heard this said so many times, you should be able to repeat this. This is the power of God unto salvation. Not, not just to be saved, but live saved, okay? Power of God's in the word. Prayer, dependency. Father, help me understand this. Help me to do it as you want. There's strength in that. And people, we were not meant to do this Christian thing alone. The context of the one another's is how this is lived out. Not complicated, right? If it was complicated, he wouldn't give it to us. Fair? Okay. Let's pray and ask for his help. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus, our Savior. Every week, he is the champion of our story. I thank you that in this lesson, it is clear that you are about you, which is the ultimate great for us. I pray, God, you'd turn our minds from ourselves to your glory, to your character, to who you are and what you've done, that we might um, ascribe to you your worth, that you would receive all glory, honor, and praise. Pray, God, that our greatest satisfaction would be there. Help us to be a people that understand this power and lean into it in dependency. I pray this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. Amen.